you, Pastor Jeff, a perfect introduction for the message today. A couple of things I want to make an announcement about. Uh, One is the baptism that we had today, as I mentioned to you, happened rather quickly. We will be having another baptism in the not-too-distant future. So if you are wanting to be baptized, please see me. Or if your child is wanting to be baptized, please see me so we can get together And we'll be having more information about that. Also, we need kids to go that way with Miss Keisha. Okay. All right. All right. Kids, go this way. Rick Palmer, sit down. You're not allowed. You're listening to audio from Grace Uh, Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at Grace well, uh, struggle with COVID. I'm so glad that nobody had it too badly. Thank the Lord some of you are back and others of you. Uh, we are praying that you will not get it or that if you do, that it will be a relatively minor. All right. I'm trying to get ready up here. I was trying in there, but I guess it didn't get done so well. Well, our, our theme for the month of January and also for the month of February, it looks like it's going to be a good portion of February, is missions. Um, we are going to look to the scripture to see the what, the why, the how of missions. You'll learn more about our missionaries. You'll meet some of our mission team. We have 10 people on our mission team. We've got a meeting right after church today. Four new members on the mission team. They will receive their assignments, all the things that we've been doing that we now are expecting them to do. We'll we'll let them know what those things are. Just kidding. Uh, You'll learn about how the mission team functions, how it leads our church's mission ministry under the elders' Leaderships. I love the slides that David Calvert has prepared for us, which feature our uh, theme verse from John 4.35. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. It's a little portion of a verse that rests in a much larger context about Jesus' desire, food and drink, Life is more than, and that being his food, it's, life is more than just food and drink. Life is more than the activities of the day-to-day. And there are people who need our care and our ministry. So, we understand the message of salvation through Christ around the world is urgent business to which the church must attend. So, where do we start? I say we start with Jesus. I was at a grocery store this past week, and in the checkout line, I saw a Life magazine. Some of you remember when this was issued weekly. If you do, you're old as dirt almost because they stopped doing this weekly in 1973. But they come out with these special issues from time to time. And this one is somewhat traditional picture of Jesus makes no leaves you no doubt who they're talking about then down at the bottom it says it asks the question who do you say that I am this issue uh, was first on stands on October 30th 2012 and this question is almost 2,000 years old 
But it is to this day the most important question that anyone can answer. Now, you may say, I think a more important question is, what will you do with Jesus? But how can we even begin to think about what we will do with Jesus until we first determine who he is? Long before Socrates lived, Yahweh asked questions of his people that were designed to provoke thought among them. Sometimes he would answer the Pharisees or the religious leaders, the lawyers. He would answer them by asking questions of his own. Now, they weren't offended by him asking questions. They were often offended by the implications of his questions. They were like, hey, what are you doing? I know what you're trying to get at. Um, And look, but the question, the back and forth was somewhat, it was kind of like entertainment for the day. There were People couldn't spend four to seven hours on social media every day. And so whenever there was a debate going on, a crowd would gather. And I, I think we, we tend to think that these were very quiet. But the crowd was involved. They were like, yeah, that's a good one. Or ha, ha, ha. You know, they would laugh when Jesus would throw zingers at them. We don't think of them as zingers because we think of Jesus always walking around. Behold, a fig tree, a parable. And that's the way we, we tend to think of Jesus. But he, he wasn't like that. He, he was interacting and it was very lively conversation often. So this morning, we're going to find Jesus and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus will ask for the first time, who do you say that I am? The first message in our series on missions is titled, The Name That We Proclaim. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Now this may come as quite a surprise to you, but there's a great deal of controversy surrounding this text and its meaning. You might be wondering what this text has to do with missions. Well, I I will tell you that I initially planned to go through 
Matthew um, 17, verse 9, at which point the purpose will be very clear of what this has to do with missions. If you've been contemplating the question that was put before the disciples, who do you think Jesus is? Then there will be an answer from the Bible that you will have to determine whether you believe or not. If you've been a believer for several years, there are profound implications for how we should live our lives based on what we believe. And as we work our way through this text, I'll give my best understanding of what it means along with explanations for why people have other views about the text. These are deep waters, and if you feel a bit lost, you might take comfort in knowing that the disciples didn't come anywhere close to understanding the full implications of their confession, as we will see next week, because we're going to plow on through all the way through 17.9 next week, or at least I hope we're getting all the way through 17.9 next week. And by the way, let me just say this, especially if you're here for the first time. If you are, by the way, thank you very much. We're glad that you have chosen to worship with us. But look, we, all, we learn in layers. And sometimes you'll hear something several times, and every time you're like, I don't have the slightest idea what that means. And then one day you'll hear it, and it makes perfect sense, and it's all those layers of learning that have built together to bring you to the place of understanding. Now, in verse 13, we're told that Jesus led the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It was a Roman city 25 miles north of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So Jerusalem, I should have had a map up here. Jerusalem is way down here. Sea of Galilee is here. And Caesarea Philippi is way up there. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon has the best skiing in the, in the land. And when I went in the early 80s, I, I was thinking, hey, I'm going to ski Mount Hermon. Well, it's in the Golan Heights, and so there was no getting through that area. And also, who would have had time anyway? But it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Caesarea Philippi was a town nestled in the foot, at the foot of Mount Hermon. It was named after Caesar and Philip Tetrarch, uh, who was Herod the Great's son. It was a pagan city where the god of Pan, or Pan, if you will, was worshipped. Pan was a goat and human figure. He was associated with spring and fertility or sex, as so many pagan gods are. So why would Jesus choose a pagan place to ask the disciples this most Important of questions. That's worth contemplating, don't you think? Why, why would Jesus do that? Well, for starters, Caesarea Philippi, as far as we know, was as far away from Jerusalem and the temple that Jesus ever got in his earthly ministry. Time and again, both in Judea and Galilee, religious leaders had... <clears throat> often uh, peppered Jesus with questions, not with the intent of seeking to verify his claims to divinity. He said, let me, let me, okay, now wait a minute. You say this. What about this? What, how does this all work together? But seeking to entrap him 
and expose him as a fraud. But Jesus wouldn't play the game. And so consequently, he ended up exposing them to be the fools they were. So it, it, it could be that Jesus came all the way to Caesarea Philippi. And he chose this location for this first great confession of, of his messiahship. To indicate that God's kingdom would extend far away from Jerusalem. It would be centered not in the temple, but in Jesus himself. And all kinds of people would come into the kingdom. Pagans, like the ones that lived in Caesarea Philippi, Gentiles. But also the religious sort that the disciples were. Jesus began his inquiry by asking, who do others say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. This term had divine implications from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus' question was for all his disciples. As we say you, we don't know whether you're referring to an individual or a group of people. It's singular or plural we don't know. But it's not like he was saying, Bert Wallace, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He was saying, hey, all y'all. I think that's kind of how he said it too. Hey, all y'all, I got a question for you. Who do they say that I am, essentially? Now, they gave the answers that we would have anticipated for them to give. Well, some people say John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Herod surely thought that, and that's who he thought Jesus was. Others said Elijah. Elijah was always mentioned in Jewish <coughs> uh, prophecy as a forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus is going to say in Matthew 17, 12, that's right. And if you will, Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist who was the forerunner of me. The Messiah. But they, some people were saying, oh, you're Elijah. Others said you were Jeremiah. This was not uh, a friendly guess about who Jesus was. Jeremiah had very harsh things to say about the people of Israel and their being so far from God. And he was the one who first said, you have made my father's house a den of robbers. You have made the Lord's house, his house, God's house. A, a den of robbers. Jesus repeated that. Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of the temple. What happened? Babylon came in, destroyed it. In fact, the time frames are almost are eerily similar. Jesus prophesied the destruction of of the temple. It was Herod's. I mean, it was Solomon's temple back in the day. Now it's Herod's temple. Jesus prophesied the destruction, and people didn't want to hear it. But they were saying, some, some people guessed, oh, so you're like a Jeremiah. That's who you are. Others said that Jesus was one of the prophets, possibly the greatest prophet. Then Jesus directed the question for them to answer in a more personal way. The grammar is emphatic. He's still talking in plural, but he said, but... You, you guys, I'm not, I don't care what others think. <clears throat> Who do you think that I am? 
Now look, missions is all about sharing Jesus, right? Sharing Jesus all over the world. But it's no good to share Jesus all to the ends of the earth if, you're not, if we're not sharing him here. And so whenever you're sharing Christ with someone, these are really great questions. Uh, they're rather, the first one may feel like it's kind of a general question. The second one zeroes in. If you talk to someone, say, hey, who do, who do people say that Jesus is? Just get them to, to talk about that and say, well, who do you think Jesus is? Do you think he is anymore? Or do you think Jesus just was a good man or a great teacher? If we don't get this answer correct, then there's no need for missions as we define the discipline. I'll talk a lot more specifically about that next week. Although Jesus asked all the disciples for an answer to his question, one disciple stepped forward and answered the question. You'll never guess who it was. Even if we didn't have this text, we would know who it was, right? It was Peter. Of course it was Peter. He often spoke for the group, and he answered in fine fashion here. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Jesus said, you, or Peter said, you are the Messiah that we've been looking for. Now, people had used terms up to this point. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. That, that indicated that they thought he was the Messiah, but they weren't really getting it. This was the first time that somebody really got it. You know what it's like when you're trying to instruct someone trying to teach them something, and they're just not getting it. And then all of a sudden, they get it, and you're like, yes, Jesse, you get it now. Great, you get it. Well, that's kind of what was happening. Jesus said, yes, that's right. Although it would be in the next breath almost, as we'll see next week, that Peter indicated he didn't get it fully. Rather than praising Peter for his insight, Jesus declares that Peter is blessed because God in heaven has revealed this to him. Think about that. And say, Peter, man, you are so, yes, everybody else. No, he said, Peter, you're blessed. My father has helped you to understand this. So when Jesus acknowledges that Peter has given the correct answer, he then goes from speaking to the entire group to addressing Peter directly. To this point, the questions have been given to all the disciples. Now, though, he calls Peter blessed and then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus uttered words that have resulted in one of the primary divisions between Catholics and Protestants. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There was a, a place in Caesarea Philippi where they called this, these gates into a cave. I believe it was a cave the gates of Hades. And Jesus is essentially saying, when the church is built, 
the demons of hell are going to fly out from those gates and they're going to attack the church, but they're not prevail against it. And as I often say, this does not promise the gates of hell will not prevail against the American church. It's never fully over not prevail against the church. Satan will never fully overcome the church. Then he says in verse 19, I, I, Jesus, will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is straightforward, right? Uh, maybe not. Where, where to begin? When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. He used a different Greek word than Peter's name, which also means rock. Petros is rock. Petra is the feminine form of the noun Petros. And there is a, a wordplay going on here. Um, Peter is rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, what does he mean? Catholics understand this promise, along with verse 19, which talks about the keys of the kingdom, uh, kingdom of heaven, keys of the kingdom of heaven, to mean that Peter is the ultimate head of the church. And from this understanding, they derive the doctrine of the leadership of the church being passed from one pope to another pope, so that beginning with Pope Peter, it has passed all the way down to Pope Francis, and the pope is Jesus' primary representative on earth and has supreme and full authority on all matters concerning the church, especially with regard to salvation. But is this what Jesus was saying? Although Jesus singled out Peter for special leadership in verse 18, anybody asleep yet? Snoring? Please try to, if the person next to you starts snoring, but jab them, right? In verse 19, he gave to all disciples he, he, this exact same authority. He says, you have the authority to bind and loose. So in other words, whatever Peter says about getting into heaven stands throughout eternity. He gives that same authority to all the disciples and by extension to all church members with church discipline. Now, we almost never exercise church discipline here. But when we do, it will be a straight up and down decision by the congregation as a whole. The entire congregation weighs in on that. And in Matthew 18, he says, whatever you determine on earth will be determined or that will be what heaven goes by what you have determined. So is this, to think about this kind of authority going to Peter himself and him never making mistakes. Look, Peter repeatedly tried to distinguish himself from the other disciples. 
Lord, if it's you, it bid me to come to you so that I can walk on water, and then you and me, we'll, we'll do the water thing. That didn't work out for him. It started out okay, but then it didn't go well. What about no matter if everybody forsakes you, not me, I'll die for you. Once again, a failure. His mistakes and sins, even after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost, belie the notion that Peter was the first pope and the, and, and the notion of the doctrine of papal infallibility. I'm going to be sending out, uh, I have sent out notes, questions and notes for the home groups. Most of the groups are not meeting this week because of covid but maybe your leader, or you can pester your leader about sending those notes to you because this goes, the notes go a little deeper into this, why Peter wasn't the first, first pope. So surely Jesus didn't mean to imply that he was the rock on which Jesus would build his church, correct? Not so fast. You likely have been taught at some point that when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that the rock means the Peter's confession of faith in him. That's far more feasible than saying that Peter was the Pope. But there's a different Greek word for rock. The word lithos, to be precise. And it was available to to prevent any possible misinterpretation of what Jesus was saying. The word that Matthew used, Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic, but this gospel that Matthew has written in Greek is the word of God, and the word that is used is Petra. So it indicates some connection between Peter and the rock upon which the church would be built so firmly. It's likely... That Jesus was speaking directly to Peter, saying that the church would be built on him and that he would be given the keys to the kingdom, indicating he could unlock the door for people to go through and gain or withhold access to heaven. So this is the big question. Is there enough time left in this message for me to get out of this hole that I am in already? That's the question. By the way, when you hear somebody saying, I'm trying to dig myself out of a hole, if you're ever in a hole, quit digging, okay? That's, but I'm going to do just that. I, I get the point. You're trying to dig your way up. Um, I think there is. So he, he, here's, <clears throat> this text is where all the stories and all the jokes come from that claim Peter is at the gates of heaven and you have to get past him to get in. Uh, it, this is an unfortunate mischaracterization of what Jesus taught. It's clear from the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament that Jesus is the door, the gate, the only entry point into heaven. And it doesn't matter what age you are. If your trouble with Jesus claims to be in the only way to heaven, you got to deal with it. Either you believe it or you don't. It is, it's a, I think of it this way. The gospel is a, a very, Christianity is a very inclusive religion with a very exclusive message. And there is a narrow entry point. Jesus makes this clear. The gate to heaven, the, 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 the way is narrow. The gate is narrow. 
the road to destruction is very broad. So it's the message. What is it? What is the access to heaven? It's the message about Jesus that must be believed, about his sacrificial death to be more specific that we will deal with in fine detail next week. And by the way, I've used these terms a lot. Every once in a while, I explain them carefully. We'll talk about it next week. Theology of glory, where people are trying to be good enough to get to heaven, or a theology of the cross, where we believe we could never be good enough, which is why Jesus came and died in our place. Christianity is different from every other religion. We don't try to get to God. We just believe that he came to us. Now, that belief changes everything. So it's not just, oh, yeah, cool, that's cool, I believe that. No, it, 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 it demands our entire lives. But again, more detail about that next week. For, for now, what did Jesus mean when he said he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter? If hearing and believing the gospel are required for entry into heaven, then it's helpful to remember that every time the gospel went to a new people group, Peter was involved preaching to that group. Uh, he preached at Pentecost in Acts 2 where, where thousands, 3,000 Jewish men plus wives and, and children, women and children, uh, believed that Jesus was the Christ. In Acts 8, Deacon Philip had gone up to Samaria. And you know what the Jews thought of Samaritans and vice versa. They hated each other. Because the Jews considered the Samaritans, you're not really Jewish. You're half Jewish, half Gentile. That means we don't want anything to do with you. But Philip went up, preached. There was this great revival. People believed and were baptized. But it was only after John and Peter came up and laid hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit and signifying that salvation had come to the Samaritans. And then some 10 years or so after Pentecost, Jesus went to the home of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And he shared the gospel and the Holy Spirit, when they believed, the Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his household, signifying again that salvation through belief in the gospel of Jesus had extended to the Gentiles. And you could say that every single time the gospel goes to a new group, Peter is turning the key because he's sharing the gospel. So it's no major thing to say that the rock is Peter upon whom the church will be built. Now, after not long after Cornelius, Peter makes a big mistake. Again, this is covered in the, in the home group notes, so you might want to make sure you get a copy. He makes a big mistake about the gospel. He says, oh, maybe you do have to add works, to the works of the law to Jesus. And Paul rebuked him to his face, drug him by the ear, most likely down to Jerusalem. Peter submitted to the council and he said, you know, Paul's right. I, and he didn't, it doesn't record it in Acts 15, but he essentially said, I made a mistake. This is not the first pope. But God used Peter in a very special way. So after giving the keys to Peter, Jesus made a remarkable statement. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. Once again, it's like he's either unlocking the door or locking it back. It sounds very much like Peter has ultimate authority over one salvation. So it's, it's almost like Peter's on earth saying, Hey, Jason, you're good. Uh, over here, not so good. And God is like, now what did Peter say about this person? He's checking this record. Oh, of course, that's not what he was saying. The Greek reads differently than our English translation. The words bind and loose are written in a little-used Greek verb tense. The future paraphrastic perfect. And you all know what that is, right? The future paraphrastic perfect. Look, it's as difficult to explain as it sounds. It's kind of crazy. If it were translated literally, it would say, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So why isn't it translated that way? Translation's a tricky business. The first translators felt that that was too awkward. The King James Version, it was too awkward. And they translated it, so whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, will be loose or shall be loosed in heaven. That's less awkward to say. And then once... Translation is already made. Other translations give a lot of weight to that initial translation. There's a lot of respect given to that. Um, So it's not that Peter or any of the apostles of the church can change the way God looks at individuals. Although the Greek doesn't give the exact opposite interpretation of how it sounds in our translations. The truth is far closer to this notion. We are carrying out heaven's will in our actions. Without our willingness to share the gospel, there can be no fruit. When the gospel is believed and people are saved, it is fully appropriate to say that God has done the work in sinners' lives. So... When you hear people say, oh, I'm just so, Scott Cobra saved me. You're like, no, he didn't. No, Scott Colbert introduced you to Jesus who saved you. That's the reality. And what a privilege it is for Scott Colbert or anybody else to be a part of that process. What a privilege. In verse 20 Jesus sternly warned the disciples not to reveal his identity. Why did he do this? Why did Jesus say, now don't tell anybody. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Yeah, well, don't tell anybody. Now, most likely he did that because he didn't want any distractions on the mission that he must fulfill, going to Jerusalem and dying for the sins. Now, I'm guessing the disciples were saying, okay, wait a minute, I get it. You're going to lead an armed rebellion against Rome, and you don't don't want anybody to know when it's going to happen. You don't want to get arrested. You don't want to, whatever. We get it. This past uh, Christmas, the families came down from the mountains. We had 20 people in our home, um, and one of our grandsons, we had the children's table in there. You know how it is, the adult table in here children's table in there. Some of the adults are in there taking care of the really little children. 
But the adults are in here, and our seven-year-old grandson, Abel, came in and sat down and just held court. He regaled us with these stories. He's like, hey, hey, and then he'd tell another story. And they were hilarious. I mean, we were hilarious. And I said something. I can't even remember. I wish I could remember what I said that was sort of the adults would get it, but not necessarily able. And he just kind of looked at me and went on and kept talking. And then he just stopped. Right when he was talking, he said, hey, and and what you said, I get that. I get it. (laughs) And then he kept on talking. It was hilarious. And I think that's probably what the disciples are saying here. Okay, got it. We'll keep this secret. Because we know that you are going to overthrow Rome. But that wasn't what was going to happen at all. That wasn't Jesus' plan. We will see that after Jesus' resurrection... And particularly after Pentecost, the apostles, according to design, would shout this good news to the world. They could not help themselves. There's something about Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19, that reminds me of Romans 9 and 10, which I've referenced recently. Romans 9, God says, I'm the one who determines who will be saved and not. And don't even ask questions about it. I'm God, you're not, it's okay. But then in Romans 10, Paul is saying, I desperately want my brothers to be saved. And in fact, if you don't go, people can't hear. And if they can't hear, they can't believe. You have to go so that people will call on the name of the Lord and send in missionaries. Yes, it is urgent that we do the Lord's work of witnessing and send in missionaries Around the world so that some will hear and believe. So to close our time, it'd be really cool to have three or four or five points. If I had all those points, I would have stopped this a lot earlier. Uh, I think the best way, though, to help us understand Matthew 16. And what, what is God's role? What's our role in sharing who Jesus is to the world The best way to understand Matthew 16 is to hear from God's word in Romans 10. So, is it that God God decides who gets saved and we have nothing to do with it? Or is it that the message is presented and we have a choice and God's like, okay, what's your decision going to be? Your choice, totally. Yes or no? If it were only that simple. It never is. There are very direct statements that indicate both. A lot more that indicate God chooses than, than indicate that he, he wants everybody to make this decision. And it's up to you to make the decision. But it all mingles together. And if we had it all figured out, we'd be God. And there's no danger of that happening. <clears throat> so, Romans 10 Verses 1 through 17. That's a lot of verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for my brothers in Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're very religious, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking... Did I say ignorant? Ignorant? That's... The way we we say it, ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, that is, they do not submit to God's righteousness. So here's what Romans has already been telling us. A great exchange happened at the cross of Christ. Our sin was taken upon the perfect and holy Son of God. And for those who believe, He gives His righteousness. Jesus, a perfect sacrifice, never sinned. And when we believe that He died in our place, His righteousness becomes ours. And so Paul is just saying, they didn't submit to God's righteousness because they were trying so hard to get there themselves. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the end of trying to be good enough to everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So in other words, you, you, you say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best person I can and maybe it'll be okay. Well, he's essentially saying, if you're going to go for the law, keeping the law to get you into heaven, you better keep every single commandment. But, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith in what Jesus did says this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. <clears throat> because if you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. If you've come today and you're thinking, now, who is Jesus? I'd really like to know. This is what's required. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and He has raised Him. God has raised Him from the dead. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now, all those questions, those reasons that youth are walking away from the Lord make a lot of Christians feel ashamed. I'm, I'm, you know, well, I really do believe this. No, one day when really, when it, when it counts, when the whole world stands before God, those who believe will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how they are to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent missions? This is what, what this is all about. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. Not everyone's going to believe. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So... 
Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God is what you would answer if I ask you what that last word is. <clears throat> but it's the word of Christ, and it could be translated the word about Christ. It's the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The more we know and hear and believe and talk about the gospel, the more our faith is increased. How beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news to the world. Roy Lytle is our mystery guest in two weeks' time. Uh, when I shared that the other night, um, some of the elders knew it, and others were like, oh, yes, Roy Lytle, that's so great. Roy Lytle is the closest thing I know to the Apostle Paul. And as we will learn in far more detail next week, if our mission effort is not about Jesus, then what are we doing? I don't know, but it's not missions. It's not missions. It's God defines it in the scripture. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we acknowledge that there are many things difficult to understand. And I'm sure there were several here today who said, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. And then there were plenty who were like, I don't, I don't get this. Lord, there, many years ago, I didn't get this at all. Over time, I came to understand how important, not only Peter's role, not, in, not only how important the apostles' role was, they are the, the, the apostles' teaching is the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2, I believe it is. And, and Jesus is the cornerstone. But Lord, we are blessed and privileged and commanded to carry on this work of sharing the good news to the world. And so we pray that our hearts would be encouraged and that they would soar as we think about the gospel of Christ going to all the world and the men and women we support whose lives have been given to do that very thing. Thank you. Thank you for this good news. And thank you that you open our eyes and our hearts to understand. And that through Christ, through belief in Christ, we are part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand together? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.